Do you talk too much? For today's guest, Dan Lyons, that answer for much of his life has been yes. Dan is a New York Times bestselling author, screenwriter, journalist, and a self-described talkaholic. That's why he began looking into why some people talk way more than others to the point it becomes a problem, how advances in society encourage such behavior, and the physiological value of talking less as displayed by some of the world's most successful and powerful people. The results can be found in his new book titled STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut. Dan, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you? Thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. So what was your inspiration for this book? Personal change. It was. Uh, it began really about uh, me trying to break a habit that I thought had caused me a lot of problems, and the habit was talking too much. And as I researched it, I found out that there's actually a condition called talkaholism, and I absolutely qualified as a talkaholic. And then I set out to try to find, um, you know, ways to fix that and ended up learning a lot about speech and about how speech um, affects our well-being, both emotionally and physically, and uh, things like parenting and being a better partner. And uh, we'll certainly talk about all those things over the course of the next hour. But at the start of this book, you actually provide a test for your readers and one that you took that helps to certify whether or not somebody is a talkaholic. So I took this test, yeah. 4 to 14, so I'm not in the talkaholic category, but there are plenty of people who do qualify as talkaholics based on answering these questions. I'm actually married to a talkaholic. But uh, the people who put this uh, this test together actually suggest that talkaholism is something that's on par with alcoholism at its worst. What's the rationale here for that? The idea is that... Um... A talkaholic is someone who can't stop talking, even when they know that what they're about to say will hurt them, even when they know that saying nothing is in their best interest, will still talk, and that it's a, a compulsion, and it's akin to an addiction. And um, And the odd thing is that it can actually be beneficial to a certain extent. Talkaholics do really well. They're seen as charming at first and um you know uh outgoing and interesting um but over time they become annoying and um and people's regard for them at least in the workplace uh starts going down but that that's generally it it's the inability to stop and by the way I'm, the scale is uh one to 50, but really 10 to 50, 10 is the lowest score. I'm actually not surprised you got a 14 in that people think that podcasters must be uh, big talkers, but, but I actually find that most of you are really good listeners, you know? And so it's not at all surprising, I guess, that you're a, you're nowhere near being a talkaholic. Well, I appreciate that. And it really just depends for the podcaster. I actually have a background in radio and I've been yeah. around plenty of people in my life who are over talkers some are productive over talkers like you just talked about and some are what i've labeled over the years as conversational rapists they just can't help themselves but oh. they figure out how to channel that in a quasi healthy slash productive manner by doing so into a microphone to for two to three to four hours five days a week 
but there is a balance to be struck. And some of those people can, they just can't turn it off. And it's just, uh, you know, it's interesting. It was interesting to read some of the science behind that, because I assumed that there would be a difference in brain function for people who talk too much versus those who talk too little. And sure enough, you and your research did find this difference as described by uh, a talkaholic scientist by the name of Michael Beatty, where he and his team at the University of Miami actually discovered what's going on differently in the brain for somebody who talks too much. So what is happening for somebody who's considered a talkaholic inside their noggins? Right. There's a, an imbalance of, of uh, neuronal activity in the prefrontal cortex. I hope I get that right. Um, and, and essentially it's uh, in, in an ordinary person um, uh, at rest, the left and right side would be more or less in balance. Some people that balance is way off. So if your right side is really firing and active and the left side isn't very much, that tends to be someone who's a talkaholic who also has problems with impulse control and vice versa. And then the farther you're out in terms of the imbalance, the more of an overtalker you'll be. So that's really interesting. And it took uh, Michael a long time to figure that out. The bad news of that for me was that, well, then there's no cure because you can't rewire your brain. So I sort of ran into him in the early parts of my journey and then sort of hit a wall and then had to figure out my own ways to not cure talkaholism, but to um, control it, to develop some discipline. Yeah, to reroute it, because Beatty yeah. did say that there is no cure for this. But you, in keeping with this research, you did find ways to ebb the flow of words coming out of your mouth. I did. And the funny thing is that, I don't know if this is in the book, but Beatty is himself an amazing over-talker. Yeah, it, it is in the book. He's yeah. a talkaholic. In fact, the scientist who did the work on talkaholism, who referred me to Beatty, told me before I called, he is, I'll warn you, he is the biggest talkaholic I've ever known. And he said, and you can tell him that because he knows and he's he's fine with it. But the first time we talked, I got him on the phone. He talked for so long that in the middle of the conversation, I took the phone with me, got in my car, drove to a different part of town, picked up my son, drove him back, got back to my desk. And that whole conversation kept going that whole time. And um, the next time, and so, so, so much so that we had to do another, I had to set up another time to talk to him to get the information about talkaholism because it's the other problem. He didn't really talk about any of the questions I asked him. And then the second time he called, we hadn't even set up a time. He just called out of the blue one afternoon. And um, I thought, okay, great. Let me run and get my computer. And he talked for two hours about COVID and vaccines and the lockdown at, at his university. And we still got nothing to do with the book. I had to talk to him a third time to finally get any information. So he is himself an extreme over-talker, um, but super interesting, really gregarious. But anyway, yeah, so I I didn't want to remain a talkaholic and I didn't want to just say, well, it's just how I'm wired because it had, it had really cost me. And I thought I'm, I, I was motivated to, to change, I guess you would say. Yeah. 
Yeah, and this is a brutal self-admission on my part, but I've had to end friendships in the past with people who I didn't dislike them necessarily, but I knew the time commitment required just to maintain any semblance of relationship with that person. Where if I see their name and number popping up on my cell phone, I know that I need to allot the next two to three hours just to right. listen to them say whatever. And some of it could be interesting, but it does get to a point where you can only hear somebody speak for so long before you start to tune them out. And yep. your research bore this out as well. There, We do have limits with regards to how much we're listening to somebody drone on before it becomes completely ineffective. Yeah, and it's very fast. That was one thing that startled me. Um, I don't have it right in front of me right now, but the- It was like 30 seconds or something. 30 seconds, people yeah. start tuning out. It was like, was it the red light, green light strategy? Yeah. And that when you, and um, and yellow light, right? So you get to about 30, 30 seconds, you're, the yellow light hits. Like you can keep talking, but you really should wrap it up. <laughs> um, and yet at a minute, they're gone. And there was other research that shows the reason it's hard to do that is that you're getting a dopamine rush when you're talking. The person on the other end is getting this, um, I guess, epinephrine rush of like bad feeling uh, chemicals. And so there's a mismatch. But but then again, it sort of makes sense, right? Even without the science, if you and I are talking and one of us is just monologuing, you know, that's not a conversation. And uh, but and I've had the same thing. Yeah, you see the name come up on your phone and you go, mm, not picking up. Right. Can't I don't have it. I don't have it in me right now. The worst thing is when you realize you've been that person. <laughs> that's that's what happened to me. It's just cringe. <laughs> well, a lot of over talkers are also pretty anxious as right. people. And I, I hate to keep referring to my wife, but I love my wife. My, I've definitely outkicked my coverage and I have nothing but great things to say about her. But it's I'm able to relate to this book as the person on the other end of that conversation at times. And she would wholly admit that she is also a very anxious person. And a lot of over talkers speak as much as they do to try and relieve a sort of anxiety. But how can this behavior actually make the problem of anxiety worse? Yeah, I describe something that I call the anxiety wheel, which is that you're feeling anxious and you um, you do something to help relieve the anxiety. For some people, it's go on social media. Um, for other people, it's talk. And that attempt to self-soothe, in fact, does the opposite. Um, it makes you more anxious. And so it becomes this um, vicious circle. And... Um, <clears throat> I learned through my own practice that if I can sit with that anxious feeling and realize like, okay, I'm going to want to talk. I'm going to want to over talk. So I'm going to stop. Like it, it, This whole thing is about being aware every day when you get up of how you speak and being intentional about trying to control that. So anyway, if you, if you sit with the anxiety, it actually rolls the anxiety wheel backwards. The, the re resisting the urge to talk will actually uh, lessen the anxiety you feel. And, and to the point where, you know, learning how to STFU or to talk less, listen more, actually becomes like a kind of therapy. It actually is a form of self-soothing your anxiety. It doesn't get rid of it, but um, it can actually help you cope with anxiety, which is, is a really fascinating idea that I also 
came across in doing this book, this is idea of speech as medicine, that the way you speak can actually affect how you feel emotionally, psychologically, but also even physically, your physical health and well-being. So it's, yeah, it's really profound. The other interesting thing, and I don't know your wife, but I have the same deal. I'm very anxious. And I realize a lot of what happens to me is anxiety, social anxiety. And like I have two modes. If I have to go to a social event, I usually dread them. And I either get extremely shy to the point where I don't want to go, like I'll avoid it. Or I'll go and then end up talking way too much and then leaving going, oh, I feel terrible. But there's some idea that um, talking too much, <clears throat> talking too much can actually be uh, a symptom of something like ADHD. And it's actually, in a way, it's a gift because it tells you, hey, you know, maybe you need to go see someone and get this looked at. And for a lot of people, getting a diagnosis and then maybe getting some meds and some therapy actually helps relieve the underlying condition, which then relieves the overtalking. Mm. Mm -hmm. So throughout most of this book, you are describing different scenarios where people might be better off shutting the fuck up. <laughs> I'm glad that you really start with technology, with chapter yeah. two and then chapter three. Chapter two is titled S-I-T-F-O or shut it the fuck off. Right. My favorite quotes in this book came from this chapter. <laughs> the problem is not just how much stuff is flying at us, but also <laughs> that so much of the stuff is brain melting digital dog shit. <laughs> how does technology add to the problem of people talking too much, Dan? <laughs> yeah, that really is a good line. I'm impressed with my own line there when I heard it read out loud. Um, <clears throat> um, maybe a bit extreme. Um, well, I think that, you know, in the last 20 years, think about it evolutionarily, or even not in terms of evolution, like 20 years is a blink of an eye, right? And the world in 20 years has changed so radically. And one of the biggest changes is the number of ways that people have to communicate, to broadcast their own ideas and their thoughts to the point where there are people who are become incapable of ever saying, well, I have a thought about that, but I don't need to put it on Twitter. Like, you know, everything that comes into your brain, you feel like you have to put it online. Um, so part of it is just, we've enabled over talking and, you know, some, some people who are really, really active online are, for example, some of them are really narcissists. Some of them just crave attention, good or bad. Um, and so they have a platform for it. And then, then we had mobile devices, which meant now it's in your pocket. Now it's never not there. Right. Um, and so most of us have multiple communication apps. We might have, um, you know, email, Twitter, text messages, WhatsApp, Instagram, uh, TikTok. If, if I don't ever post anything on those, but um, there are uh, just so many places for us to take in information and it's overwhelming our brains. And I think it's creating a kind of um, mental illness is maybe, I think that's a term you shouldn't use lightly, but um, it's creating a dysfunction at, at a societal level. So for example, Look at how angry the world is now. And this research isn't just anecdotal. There's lots of research about uh, anger in the world now compared to 20 years ago. The world is getting more and more angry. And, um, you know, used to talk about people who would say things online that they would never say to your face. Well, now they say it to your face. Right? We have people on airplanes attacking flight attendants. 
Um, we have these Karen videos and it's kind of funny to watch, except after a while you think, what is wrong? Like what's happened to our society? And well, Occam's razor is what's the big thing that's changed? Well, social media and streaming services and platforms enabled by the internet. And that in turn, I think is creating this sort of polarization, this demonization in politics. You know, people say, well, in the old days, you know, Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan, they would duke it out all day, but they'd go out for drinks at night. There was a certain amount of civility in politics, even if you look back to um, the 2008 campaign uh, when uh, Barack Obama ran against McCain and people would get up at McCain rallies. And it was just the beginning pre-MAGA world of, you know, Sarah Palin. And they would get up and start saying, well, you know, your opponent, Obama, he's a Muslim and he's a Kenyan. And McCain would stop and say, look, you know, no, like he's a really good guy. I served with him in the Senate. He's a, a great guy. He's a family man. He's a terrific person. He and I just disagree about how to solve problems. That, think about it, dude, that's gone away, right? And not just at the level of people firing back and forth at each other, like the reg regular people. You can't have a conversation with people in your family anymore. Um, and I think a lot of that is this, yeah, like I say, at a, at a level of, of a societal level, a kind of anger and mental illness that has taken hold of us, all of us. And we're so brainwashed in that matrix that we don't realize that it's happening. Part of the power of the brainwashing is it also makes you incapable of realizing how much you've been brainwashed. So it's um, it's an insidious thing. And, I, and I've come to believe the only way to stop it is just to get off social media. Um, and it, it's not just social media and devices. The, the shut it the fuck off is really about devices. That's just like to have time where you're not with a phone, you're not with a screen, you're not looking at TV. Spend time just being right somewhere, um, but then social media is its own has its own chapter, and that's its own sort of um, evil. Yeah, no doubt. And we'll talk more about social media in just a second, though. But the reality is that the, these machines that make us think that we are smarter are mm -hmm. actually having the opposite effect because many of us are no longer able to think critically or troubleshoot, or simply just be in the moment. And that is extremely unhealthy. I don't care who you are, but hey, AI is going to help us do all of that at some point in the near future. So we shouldn't worry about it too much. Yeah, right, right, right. AI will do everything for us. You know, yeah, I think we've lost something, uh, something big in our lives. Like in the course of researching and writing this book, I I took up something called forest bathing, which I had read about and sort of originated in Japan. And it's become very big here. There's like thousands of certified forest bathing guides. And it's sort of a, it's like a ritual. You go into the woods, you don't do much of anything. This is the ironic thing. It's like the whole point of it is you don't do anything. You don't go and try to hike and how far can I go and how much can I climb? It's just, no, do nothing. And then just be, just be in the woods and, I like to think it's silence, but then when you really sit and you're quiet, you realize it's not silent. There's a lot going on. It just, you are able to kind of, you know, tune in on it. And I have come to believe that those periods of silence are really important or even like, you know, 
we'll walk our dog. My wife and I will take our dog out for a walk. And, you know, I get tempted sometimes to pull my phone out and start looking at email while the dog's running around with other dogs. And I realize like, no, you should do just leave the phone. Just, just go for that walk in the woods without digital stimulation. And um, almost to the point now where I think, and I think, cause I'm not the only one feeling this way. I feel like people are going to start to re remember the value of analog moments of, of moments free of digital um, interference or intermediation. And so for example, I'm doing an event next week. It's a, it's called a salon, which I think is a little fancy, but um, the woman who runs these runs them in LA and New York. And in LA, she says she has a lot of um, TikTok influencers who come. And she said, the amazing thing is they, none of them pull out their phones. And she's like, oh, wow. they all crave an analog experience. That's the one thing they don't have. Their whole life is digital and on screen. And what they crave is just to sit, the two of us sit next to each other in a room, like two human beings. Like it's becoming so rare that now people cherish it. So it's either a good or a bad thing, depending on how you look at it. Yeah, I had a really good uh, conversation in the last couple of months with an author, David Sachs, on his book, The Future oh. is Analog. Great book, highly recommend it to folks. And one of the points that he makes is like, if there's mm -hmm. a silver lining to the awful things that we all went through during the pandemic over the last three years, yeah, that we got real-time human studies on having to become that much more reliant on our technologies. And as many people are, are as maybe more addicted now to those technologies, yeah. there are plenty of others who woke up as a result and realize that the substance that we seek in this world very rarely uh, has a digital footprint, that it's all about those human to human interactions that we get to have with one another, because we all got to go through, whether it was a work meeting or a book fair or a music festival or a concert or stand up or whatever else, watching those people or that performance on your computer screen fails in comparison to the real thing in ways that it's really hard to quantify. Oh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. I mean, those awful, I mean, zoom meetings. Great. I've kind of got used to those, but yeah, the thing where it would be the company be able usually we have a, our annual event and it's in person, but we're just going to do it online. And it's just awful, just awful, which is kind of why, I mean, I understand remote work and why people want to work remotely. And I do because I'm, you know, I'm home alone in a room. I actually would love to work around other people. Yeah. And, um, you know, I've noticed that I do some speaking sometimes where I'll, you know, go to a corporate event. And I, and I, I always think, God, you know, if, if remote is so good, why did we all spend lots of money to get a plane ticket and a hotel room and why did the organizers spend a lot of money to rent this venue and get food? But why do we go to all this trouble to be in the same room? We could just do this on Zoom, right? Well, no, because Zoom sucks. Like it's that much better to be together in person it's, it, that it's worth all that money and effort. And I don't know why then the penny doesn't drop for everybody sitting there like, well, yeah, that's why we should work around each other too, at least part of the time, you know? There's a sort of an element of serendipity that occurs where, oh, I didn't know you were going to be here at this meeting. Trey, oh my God, you're here too. Oh, how's it going? And then we end up talking. Maybe it's just we chit chat or maybe, you know, we end up 
meeting someone and going, oh, we're in the same business. Maybe we should we should collaborate. Let's let's exchange information. Let's so new ideas and and collaborations and uh, uh, progress comes from just people somehow being in the same physical space. I'd like to read that book because um, I believe that's true. That analog is becoming really uh, important. Is that David Sachs, the the venture capitalist? No, different. It's a David different Sachs. David Sachs. Yeah, yeah. Because I wouldn't imagine he would think that the future is analog. <laughs> Even if he did, he wouldn't say it out loud. No, no, probably not. Affect the bottom line profits. But uh, mm. you're exactly right. And, you know, the point, one of the points that he makes in this book, not to get too far off track here, he, he goes through different aspects of life to see how the digital compared to the analog, whether it's work, oh. school, uh, and culture, experiencing a city, uh, religion. And uh, he found without fail that the uh, the real world experience is much better. Now, as you just uh, suggested a couple minutes ago, it's up to people to really find uh, more ways and better time to unplug. And that may be hard for some people to hear, but I agree with that because much like with the U.S. healthcare system and the, the, your best bets – to remain healthy over a long period of time is to try and rely as little on the U.S. healthcare system as possible. So leading a life where you're eating relatively healthy and you're you're getting movement in and physical exercise and things like that, it's up to you to understand the perils of uh, what's going on with these digital technologies and act accordingly. And that is certainly the case with social media. And that mm -hmm. is the title of chapter three, shut the fuck up on social media. As you write, <laughs> social media companies have become akin to big tobacco, peddling a harmful product, targeting kids and covering up scientific research that might undermine their business. Yeah. These major internet corporations and especially social media have figured out how to hack our dopamine systems. What effect does this have on users over time? Well, a not not a good one the the interesting thing the caveat i would preface it this with is what makes it difficult is that there are some ways in which social media is really good right where it, it makes life better it helps people stay connected etc cetera, etc cetera. so you can't just say it's all bad stop it all right um which is you know then it means you have to find a balance but yeah their business model is uh is selling ads. They want to show you as many possible. So they want to keep you on the site as long as possible. The way to do that is to get you engaged, which means not just reading, but tweeting, sharing, posting, liking. And the way to get you to do that is to kind of get you angry or provoke you or piss you off to show you stuff that's going to make you go, oh, damn, you know, I want to write something about this. And people very quickly find that if they really want to get attention, if they want to get followers, if they want to get more shares, Post something incendiary, post something provocative, be, be angry. And um, and so there, there are studies that show that over time, people will be trained by the system to start posting more angry stuff, which is crazy, right? It's like the AI behind Facebook or Twitter or whatever is actually teaching you to behave in a certain way. It's the way slot machines teach people to keep pumping the slot machine, right? It's, in fact, they use the same techniques. These guys at Stanford have studied the techniques used by um, casinos to make apps addictive. And the problem then with being angry online is it, it doesn't go away. When you go offline, you stay angry offline. And then that does all sorts of bad physical things to you. You know, you have cortisol going through your bloodstream. So you, you, you're hurting your 
you're actually physically hurting your health and your psychology. Yeah. And I think it's, it's all by design. That's what blows my mind is that it's all, it's not like a, a, a bad side effect that, oh, it's, you know, it's fortunate. It is what they're designed to do. I find it myself, man. And I, I quit almost all social media and then, um, I kept Twitter, but just to read because I thought it was a nuisance. And in the last few months, I've realized Twitter has become a lousy news filter. But um, even now, I'll be skimming through Twitter and I'll see something where someone says something and it's like, to me, like so stupid or so wrong. And I almost start to tweet something that says, boop, 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 or it's, I have a funny comeback. And I realize like, the machine is making me do this. Like, why? First of all, no one's going to read what I write. Like, you know what I mean? I think a lot of people write stuff. The writing isn't even for the sake of communicating. It's like there's something um, that feels good about euphoric about just posting the thing. And I'll stop myself and be like, why am I doing this? And I really, really want to. And it's someone I don't know, you know, has written something. Like, why do I feel? Think about it. Like, why do you and I feel that urge to like, I'm going to set you straight, you know, and I'm going to do it in public so people can see me. I it's it's when you step back from it, it is just the craziest thing, right? The most crazy phenomenon to be so oh, sorry, man, to be so bought into that that mindset. I don't know. Yeah, and unfortunately, it probably plays into uh, what the programmers learned from those slot machines, and that is the uh, in, intermittent rewards that you're getting right. versus that constant stream of rewards. It uh, it keeps you salivating for more without uh, being overfed. And at the end of this chapter three, shutting the fuck up on social media, you do offer some good suggestions for cutting back on social media. Some of this stuff is uh, are things that I've done on my own, like yeah. uh, going gray, which, which is uh, going to the black and white feature on your cell phone. That is very helpful. Turning off notifications, which I'm a huge fan of. You suggest buying a dumb phone, which I have not done yet, but I am so close to that point where I just go back to a phone that uh, maybe offers uh, just text messages, phone calls, and then some simplistic version of Tetris. And then you also uh, suggest something called the wait method. What exactly is the wait method? No, the why am I tweeting, which is also, it really originated as why am I talking and as a way of helping people in, say, meetings think about. Uh, why am I going to put my hand up in this meeting and say something? And then there's a list of questions you ask yourself about well, what do I hope to achieve from this? So, so the, I just, I use it in a chapter about talking, but I also use it in tweeting. Um, Cause I actually think over tweeting is like the first cousin of over talking. It's, it's the same thing. Right. And, um, and yeah, why am I tweeting? What do I hope to get from this? What, why, what will I accomplish? Will I persuade someone? Do I, or the other one I always wonder, do I have some special knowledge or expertise in this very narrow field that makes my opinion worthwhile? So for example, there's a guy on Twitter named Mark Hurtling. He's a retired general and he comments a lot about Ukraine and his stuff is great. I will tune into him because, man, he knows this stuff. He can explain to you, here's why you shouldn't have this kind of missile because it requires this many people to maintain and train and blah, blah, blah. It's like, wow. But like, why would I mouth off on Ukraine? What would I add to that conversation other than, you know, how I feel? Um, or like, why would I have some thoughts about battlefield tactics or someone writes something and you want to go, oh, you're a Russian troll, you know, like, what 
what value does that add to anything? Right? So usually when I ask myself, why am I tweeting? I never have a good answer. I rarely, you know, rarely, rarely can say, okay, that's, that's worth tweeting. And I think if you just put that screen up in front of yourself, like the, why am I tweeting screen? Um, it really helps. It really helps kind of cut you off from that, that madness of just being, like I said, you know, turned into a puppet by the machine. Mm -hmm. yeah. Chapter five is shut the fuck up as medicine. Matthias Mel is a social psychologist at the university of Arizona. He and his team released a report called eavesdropping on happiness that found that people who spent more time having good conversations and less time with small talk were happier than everyone else. But I guess the question becomes, because that does make sense in theory, but what qualifies as a good conversation? Ah, it's a very good question, because that's what I asked him. And he describes it as substantive, authentic. So the kind of conversation we're having right now, that's a good conversation. We're talking about interesting things and learning from each other, right? And versus small talk, which is chit chat about the weather and blah, blah, blah. Interestingly enough, good conversations also involve talking less, listening more, asking questions. So um, this whole thing of you know shutting the fuck up, even in a conversation, is a way to make a conversation into a good conversation. Um, I've had ones with with my daughter who um, who's a teenager that involved me saying very very little. <laughs> and letting her talk. And we have amazing conversations where if I had just started doing, you know, we sometimes call them danalogs, like datalogs. I have a monologue and I'll start telling her this. And blah, blah, blah. There's no conversation, right? And I think I put it somewhere in the book that sometimes it's the end of it. I think, well, we just had a great talk and it's like, really, no, I was having a great listen. But that, the listening talking less actually creates space for a really good conversation. Um, but yeah, that's the, and the, the more other interesting thing is he went beyond people being happier. The next beat was people who have good conversations are also healthier. They could correlate it to healthier immune systems, which is like mind blowing, right? I can tell you're into health, right? And diet and exercise, um, this just fits right in with that. Yeah. UCLA research found that good conversations can cause a, uh, a down regulation of the inflammatory response. And when you're doing that, I mean, that is touching a lot of bases with regards to things that can potentially go wrong, but can also be really good if you're finding a way to get that under control. Yeah, right. Because you're looking at um, in inflammatory disease, and um, so yeah, there's an idea. These those researchers had this idea that um, a the way someone speaks maybe becomes a way to diagnose underlying conditions. It becomes like a a window into your um, you know your your physical well being, and then uh, Matthias Mel thinks that we may then be able to do, flip it around and say, well, if I change the way I speak, can I become healthier? So we know like, okay, if I get 10,000 steps a day, I will be healthier. If I 
sleep this many hours a day, I'll be healthier. Well, what if we say, well, you know, also try to have two good, two really good conversations every day. Make sure you get out, find people. Um, and that will make you healthier too. Why do we not um, include speech and the way we speak into that formula for, for health and well-being? And it's amazing. A lot of overtalkers can't help but to get into conversational pissing contest where <laughs> one person is talking about something or sharing a story or anecdote, and that other person can't help but to chime in and try and one-up them with whatever their version of that story or anecdote is. So I mentioned all of this to ask you about something called iTalk. What is it and how is it connected to negative emotional states? Ah. Uh -huh. It's a great question. The first part of the question is sounds like something you you have experienced, <laughs> but I think we all have, right? The I'm, I'm guilty of it at times, but it also we all are. always need to no end when you're around somebody who can't help themselves. You you know, yeah. My my problem is I think sometimes it's well intentioned. I find this myself. Like you'll say, oh, you know, we just got back. We went on this great vacation. Oh, where did you go? Oh, we went to um, we went to Italy, and yeah, we toured it. Now the best thing for me to say is, oh, like, well, where in Italy? And where'd you stay? And what did you do? And what did you like about it? You know, but for most people, for a lot of us, and for me, especially for me to go right back, I went to Italy once. I went there too. We went there on our honeymoon and we did this and that. And we did this. And it's like suddenly like, boom, I'm no longer hearing you say. And it begins with this genuine urge to sort of share and connect. But so I have really tried to break myself of that. And I, I'm not perfect at it. I find myself still um, still making that mistake of, and it's not even trying to one-up people, I think. It, oh, it's, there is that though. I've had the one where you say, I, uh, oh, I went skiing last weekend and it was great. And someone said, well, I was at Jackson Hole last weekend, you know, so fuck you. Right? <laughs> well, I was at Cannon Mountain in New Hampshire, you know, but, um, <laughs> but but yeah, there is a there is that idea that if you can stop and and listen, but you have to really listen. You have to actively listen and then follow up. The other issue problem people have is you're talking, and I'm sitting here. And I'm not really listening. I'm already thinking like as soon as he finishes, I'm going to tell him that I went to Italy. I'm already thinking what I'm going to say. When it would be better if I just just let you talk and then respond to that. But in, in other words, to have a good conversation, if we're going to have a really good conversation, that would be the way to do it. Yeah. And as far as I talk is concerned. It, oh, I talk. I'm sorry. I mean, that was the question. Sorry. No, that's okay. I mean, as far as I talk is concerned, it's essentially somebody who can't help but to talk about or reference themselves throughout the course of whatever it is that they're discussing with somebody else. And too right. much of that, is really bad for your mental and maybe even eventually your physical health. And I look at it, Dan, like people who are operating in the world, real world who are constantly trying to do things for other people versus those who are almost exclusively operating in ways that benefit them. And just the, the general caliber of human being that you're dealing with when you're comparing one to the other. Yeah. What's in it for me? Right. Well, and 
the interesting thing about iTalk, and it's another thing I learned from Matthias Mel, but it was actually done more by his mentor at UT Austin, um, his name Penny Baker. And he found, they found that people who use the first person pronoun a lot, I talk, it's generally a symptom of depression. It's not always narcissism. It's often yet yeah, depression. And when you think about it, when you've gone through a bad breakup, your attention tends to turn on itself. Like what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? Why don't they like me? Um, and then again, they came up with this idea, well, what if we could use that to turn things around? If you could say, I'm depressed, um, maybe we can shift the pronoun to use, like literally to create what Penny Baker called talk therapy. Can you shift and change pronouns? And will that make you feel less depressed? Um, the jury's kind of out, but there are some some studies that indicate, yeah, it's a, you could even use it as a form of psychotherapy. Therapists could say, uh, I want you to go home tonight and, you know, even talk out loud to yourself, but don't use I, you know, you talk about yourself in the third person or use your name. It sounds a little crazy, but, um, but yeah, there is this connection between, it's like, I think it's like when you see someone, oh, they're horrible narcissists, but often it's because they're really insecure. So I'm going to offer an ironic response here because I'm going to talk about myself for just a second, but I've quit, <laughs> I've quit a lot of things in my life successfully. And sometimes it's done for betterment. And sometimes it's just proving to myself that I'm stronger than the vice. And at one point huh. about 15 plus years ago, I'd read a book that had suggested to try to stop referring to yourself in the first person in huh. conversation. And I did that. And the way that I kept track of it is every time that I did so, I would put a dollar in a jar. And mm. my narcissistic girlfriend at the time is like, what are you going to do with the money? I'm like, I, I don't know. I'm going to give it to a charity or something. She's like, I'm like, I may keep it for myself. She's like, well, what good is that? I'm like, well, I'm doing it to quantify how much I'm talking about myself. And here I go, already having to put dollars in the jar, just having this conversation with her. <laughs> it's, it's more about trying to get a handle on this and see how bad a problem it is. And I eventually got a pretty good handle on referring to myself in conversation. And one, I did find it to be hugely beneficial for my mental health. The other thing that it makes you do is it really makes you think about what it is that you're going to say before you say it, because even though I'm not somebody who's an over talker, I'm somebody who does lack that filter at times. And it has gotten me in trouble in my life. Now it's been helpful at times and radio and occasionally in the podcasting realm, because you say things that are witty or funny or, or irreverent or offbeat, but it can also cause serious issues. And when you're having to think a lot harder about what it is that you're about to say or how it is that you're going to respond to something. I think that it is good for the flow of conversation for the sake of those good conversations that we just talked about. That, that makes a lot of sense, I think. And then when you're doing that, if you were, you're speaking with intention. So you're thinking about what, what I'm going to say, it's sort of like, wait, like, why am I talking? What do I, what do we want to communicate here? But then I think also when you were, um, try not to use the first person pronoun that probably caused you to then shift your attention to the other person it did. or to, yeah. Right. So you're, um, and it's probably ultimately more interesting to you, you know, because you're learning about other people. Um, yeah. Caring more about the world around you. No question. 
Chapter yeah. six is shut the fuck up at work. Nobody <laughs> should want to be that person at work. The person <laughs> who can't help but to chat up every last person that they see. I Ugh. brought up the term that I coined a few years ago, a little bit earlier, the conversational rapist. And you actually offer tips on how to yeah. shut this person down. Now, my tactic of telling that person that they're annoying and that they need to stop so much pointless conversation with people who don't want to be bothered by them. That never seems to work, Dan. So is yeah. there a, a strategy that uh, you enjoy that you got to make reference of to the readers of this book? I think ultimately the best advice I came up with was just run. You know, <laughs> when you see them coming, you have to get away. I mean, there are ways to use body language. You know, if you're in person together to, you can literally physically start turning your body uh, or your 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 gaze another one it's a kind of weird but it's almost like a boxing strategy where you start physically moving them in a circle so you know when there's a boxer in the middle and the other guy is coming around you can actually physically start moving the person and as you're moving them peel off um but oh you know the strategy i've i've read about i don't know if i would dare it depends who it was you can literally just pull the person aside you know, in a, in a good way, say, you know, you, you maybe are not even aware of this, but, you know, um, you kind of bother people with this and you talk too much. And um, I don't know if that's the politest way to say it, but, um, but there are some people who I think are just um, beyond hope. They can't be helped. In the chapter, I mentioned this study by a guy named Jason Axum, who I tracked him down. He was a grad student years ago and did this research, but like people at work eventually hate you. They hate that person. And there was one anecdote in his report that really blew my mind, which was there was a guy, very gregarious, overtalker, got promoted to be a manager. Now he had like five people reporting to him. So it was a good first step up. And he would annoy them all by coming around and talking. What did you do this week? And I think he thought he was being a great boss. He was being, um, you know, supportive. And they all thought, like, you are driving us nuts. Like, we can't get anything done. And they actually went and complained about him. Some of them threatened to quit. And so management came to the the guy and said, you know, look, it's a deal. You got to really learn how to do this and we'll help you. But um, otherwise, you can't be a manager anymore. And this guy chose a demotion like he said i'm i'm not going to change who i am this is how i am and he actually you know willingly hurt his career rather than trying to fix this problem he had which tells me like that's how powerful the compulsion can be for some people that um that they can't or won't give it up but yeah it work it's a it's a killer it's a career killer that's where talkaholism becomes a sickness on par with alcoholism, like we had talked about earlier, where you're literally choosing that to continue scratching that itch versus trying to advance yourself in the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. There's this propensity for self-destruction. And I don't want to make too too direct a comparison because I think it's it maybe makes light of the seriousness of alcoholism. But there is some, yeah, there are some connections between um, yeah, people who say I, with anything, I don't want to change. I, I realize it would probably benefit me, but I'm not going to do it. 
Yeah, and- it's, not, it's not a one-to-one comparison, but I understand the behavioral element of it and how it can be harmful to you and yeah. in different ways, those around you too. By the way, I do have a new strategy to deploy the next time I'm having to deal with a conversational rapist at work. This is something that you mentioned very tongue in cheek when you gave up your suggestions at the end of this chapter. And that is put a copy of your new book on their desk. That's a very self-serving bit of advice, but um, I do think it would help. In fact, we have a promotion. The publisher has a promotion where it was like some contest. And if you win, you get a bunch of different things of swag. And then, they will send a copy of the book to one person that you name anonymously with a note that says someone you know thinks you need this or you know something like that. And um, I've actually thought um, you could almost I could almost make a side business out of saying you know if you yeah if you want to do this you can pack it I'll 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 send it for you but the, the logistics of it if it started to take off would be too much me sitting here stuffing envelopes but. Um, and the publisher doesn't want to do it because it's like one book at a time. And maybe you could find a bookstore. I, I don't know. You'd have to charge a lot, but it could be a funny thing, right? Like here's a side, if, you know, if you want to send this book to someone, you know, for well, like, there are those, <laughs> there are those services where you can send someone a box of like dog poo or whatever, you know, like they're horrible, like someone you hate or a box of confetti. But yeah, it, it may be, uh, yeah, maybe we should pair up with one of those. Get them a wholesale price on books. But um so there are, the, I mean? there are these gifts now where you can open the gift and like a bunch of fake butterflies pop out. No, really? Yeah, I uh got one for uh for my wife for her birthday last year, and it was uh something that that uh I won't say scared her in the moment, but uh caused her to jump in the moment, but she really appreciated it after the fact. So maybe what you can do oh. is you can stuff this book into one of those boxes and have like a, a hand that's like on a spring in there. And when they open the box up, the hand like slaps them across the ah. face real quick. And then we see the book. You're a marketing genius. I wouldn't have thought of it. That's a really good one. Just like, yeah, smack them. I'd like to know about those butterfly things. Maybe you can send me a link later. That actually sounds like kind of a, a fun gift. It wouldn't be a bad one, right? That's like, people probably like that. No, it was fun. As a matter of fact, my daughter asked, she, her birthday was a month later. She asked for one after that. So we got it for her and she wasn't surprised anymore. Of course, she knew what was coming, but she really liked it. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of those cutesy little things that uh, just adds to the, to the uh, special feel of that day for the birthday person. So chapter seven is shut the fuck up at home. Mm. Uh, I do admit that I have a problem with uh, offering unsolicited advice to my kids. Yeah. I'm, I'm certainly not alone in that, but mm-hmm. uh, you state a really good case for it being a good idea for parents to sometimes sit back and be quiet. I enjoy some of the stories that you share uh, when uh, going back and forth with your daughter. And when you really started to try hard to shut the fuck up at home how it threw her off kilter. She's like, dad, why aren't you talking right now? I'm used to you and uh, your Danalogs, as you call them. Yeah. But, uh, they, they turned out to be really uh, constructive conversations. Um, child development psychologist, Allison Gopnik says parents can either be gardeners or carpenters. What yeah. does she mean by this? The carpenter is you, you build the house for your kids and tell them, you build their life, tell them, do this, do that, blah, blah, blah. You know, you build it for them. And then the, the gardener is someone who says, I'm going to, give you a space and 
you can go in there and, and you grow what you want and you you grow as a person like the guy i guess the metaphor is the kids other plants but i'm going to give you a space and then you go explore and become who you want to be who you are you know become yourself and um yeah being uh i call it an stfu parent is is in line with that you know that you don't have to tell your kids how to do this how to do that blah 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 do this and that um you give them the space and let them figure things out for themselves michelle obama actually had a, a great story about her mother was very much the type who said you know figure it out for yourself didn't solve their problems for them and oddly enough like let them fail right which is one of the subtitles in that chapter let them fail i'm not in a big big things but but then also let them win and when what's her name marion robinson i think is, her, is michelle obama's mother said then when they achieved something they knew it was them you know you did this i didn't do it i didn't get you into you know law school or whatever I, you did that my daughter just it, 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 it we've literally just had this conversation because you know i started we never really pushed them in any direction some people said to us well you should have kept them doing that that's why well, they wanted to quit so we let them quit but my daughter um is very driven very very driven and yeah they have that story in the book of her freaking out about a paper and me just sitting there and she gets mad at me after a while for not talking to her and then we have a little laugh and then she kind of worked it out for herself but she just got into college she got into a really good university and i said to her i said exactly that. i was like you know what you did that you know we didn't do it you know i didn't take your sats or write your essays or i never did your homework for you you know you did it enjoy it you know and i think she does i think kids ultimately feel more uh satisfaction you know if they you allowed them to get there. Yeah. Yeah. And the shut the fuck up parenting extends also to letting your kids be bored at times. And this gets yeah. back to the technology and social media conversation that we were having earlier. Right. Like we are in a world of overstimulation. Sometimes they need to sit there and be bored. My I've got an eight and six year old at home right now. Oh, okay. They will complain sometimes that they're bored. I'm like, cool. Oh. You've got a bunch of stuff in this house to figure out what to do. You've got a front yard, you have a backyard, figure it out. Like, I'm happy to play with yeah. you, but you're the one that needs to come up with that idea right now. And usually yeah. they do when they're when they're uh, put in that position to either be bored or figure out something better. Yeah, it's kind of wonderful, right? They, um, yeah, and it, that's the thing about our age. It's, for the first time ever, it's, in, it's possible to never be bored or at least to always be distracted. Mm -hmm. That you can always open up Instagram and uh, scroll through, <laughs> you know. Chapter eight is shutting the fuck up in love. We return uh, to our University of Miami friend, Michael Beatty, who suggests a 60-40 rule for people yeah. on a date. What is this? He says the ultimate balance. If you're on a first date and you want to get a second date or whatever, um, that both, that you, that you speak no more than 60%, but no less than 40% of the time. And- Within that bandwidth, you know, it could be 50-50, it could be 60-40, whatever, but that both people are talking sort of at about the same amount. Because if, if it gets too extreme, you only, if you go on a first date 
and you do 10% of the talking, you basically just sit there and don't say anything. Well, that's not going to work out. Even if the other person is talking 90%, you're going to be annoyed or you're going to be like, oh God, there's it was crazy, you know? And, or if you both go and you both speak 10%, there is no talking, right? That that's bad. Like in other words, but you have to meet sort of in the middle and not, um, but not take up all the oxygen. He teaches a class in, I think it's called like romantic communication or something at, at university of Miami. He said, it's always sold out. Um, kids love it. They, they, they look at movie clips and, um, yeah, study this. How do you communicate with a romantic partner in a way that's uh, effective. I mean, college kids are probably looking at it like, how can I get a get a girlfriend? But I think at a deeper level, you know, somebody like me, I've been married for 20 years. It's more like, how do I, you know, how do I conduct myself? How do we keep keep the relationship strong, you know, by in the way we communicate? Yeah, and I'm glad you bring up the uh the 36 questions for love. Oh, uh, right. I guess it was originally a, a research paper maybe that turned into a New York Times article. And I've yeah. uh, I've utilized questions for my family where I'll, you know, it's pick a number and then we we ask the question and talk about the question. Some of the questions aren't appropriate for uh for an eight and six year old, of course, but some of the questions I think are good for everybody. But the part of that 36 uh question questionnaire that I think gets overlooked at times is that after you go over those questions. You just look at one another saying nothing for four minutes. Yeah. Which may be as if not more powerful than any of the questions and answers that you're talking about. Yeah. That's amazing. So you guys have used that that system? The we we don't I've never gone down all 36 questions with my wife before, but yeah. over yeah. over time we've we've talked about most, if not all of them. But I've also neglected the four minutes of silence part. I I feel like I've kind of screwed up in that regard. And I don't know if it's a magic formula either, but that that was a, a woman who tried it, uh, that technique. She wrote an art. It was began as an article in the New York Times about going out. I think it was a guy she kind of knew, like with friends, and they ended up getting married or getting in a relationship. And then she wrote a book about it, How to Fall in Love with Anyone, I think was the title of it. But um, but yeah, the minutes of silence at the end, I, I guess, are really important. Um, and there was another, wasn't an experiment, but it was a... Uh, thing that was done i can't remember where it was god now i should have remembered my own book better but it was um i don't i don't think it was germany but somewhere in europe um where they had um a lot of refugees from syria and then people local and there was a lot of tension obviously be, be about all these people coming into our country and the the experiment was they filmed it just sit in a chair you and I, one person's a, a, a Syrian refugee, a refugee from somewhere. The other is a, a Swede, wherever they were from. And just look, just look at each other. And I think it was five minutes, maybe it was 10. And they filmed it. And you, dude, you cannot watch this without getting choked up. Just you're watching it and you're seeing these people connect with one another in a way that no conversation ever could have done. They're just like looking at each other and seeing each other as human beings. And it's really overwhelming. And then, then they feel them afterwards having a conversation. And the conversation is really intense and really good and really connected because it was preceded by this silent, just looking at each other. 
It's if I could find a link, I'll send it to you. It's it's seriously amazing. But and um, you know, I wish I could remember it better. But um, but yeah, my wife and I did this. My wife and I were separated, and then um, we started spending time together. More or less not talking. We wouldn't sit in chairs and stare at each other. But we would, uh, I'd go over and say, let's take the dog, you know, for a walk out in the woods. We had a golden retriever and needed to run and swim every day. And we'd go and just, um, and I would resist the urge to blah, 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 and I'd just kind of walk and hang out, um, sit together, watch the dog swim and get sticks. And, uh, and it did more for us than any amount of talk therapy, which we had done a lot of. And um, then it turns out there's also research that suggests um, spending time alone together in silence actually tightens bonds between people. So if you already have a bond, those silent moments actually can be very strong. Yeah, it was interesting that you made an argument in some circumstances against talk therapy for two people who are having issues. And uh, we, as a couple have, have gone to therapy before, uh, thankfully not because there are any serious issues necessarily, but I remember thinking in those moments, like this is a complete stranger who is asking us to explain one thing or another, wants to hear from us about what we think our problems are. And then we're supposed to take what they're telling us in return as the word of God and try and apply that in our lives. And that, I mean, that may work for some, but. I think for independent-minded individuals, you're going to be pretty skeptical in situations like that. But I can see the value mm. in just spending time together, not saying a whole lot, and just kind of enjoying the moment. And while it may be a bit apples to oranges, like I feel like there is a forest bathing element to what you just described, where yep. in this world where our attention is constantly being drawn on one thing or another, especially if you live in a city and you're walking down a city street, I mean, you're seeing advertisements left and right. There are other people walking by. You may have to be dodging traffic at times to just be in a situation where you're allowing your attention a break, where yeah. you're giving it a rest to allow it to completely recharge. Whether or not somebody is there, you are going to benefit in that moment. So if there's somebody else beside you right then and there, that that's a shared experience. And that's, I think, one of the keys to happiness in this world is going through bad experiences too, to a degree, but good experiences with those that you care about the most. Yeah. Yeah. Those something moments as melancholy are... as watching, watching your dog or playing fetch with your dog or watching your dog run around the dog park for an hour or so. Yeah, we do that now too. We we often, uh, especially on weekends, as we have different schedules during the week. But I'll get up Saturday. I'm really excited. Like, let's where, where can we go with the dog? And either one of us could do it alone, but we kind of we kind of want to go together. And we might talk, but you know, we don't hash out any big things. But um, I, I actually do believe in therapy. You know, like I think therapy can be really good, even. Even couples therapy for us it didn't work, and there are some statistics that show for uh, that it, it it fails quite often. And some people feel that they came out of couples therapy worse than before. Um, I think it it probably is very um, very much depends on who you are and where you are. You know, you can get to a point where things are just so bad that yeah, talking about it isn't going to help. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we got to that point, but, um, and so silence helped us, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had this great line about, um, the key to a happy marriage or a successful marriage is sometimes be a little deaf or sometimes it helps to be deaf sometimes. <laughs> and like, and then she expands on it in her book and says, well, you know, unkind word is said, just, you know, they're having a bad day. Just, you didn't hear that. Just let it go. Uh, and I thought like, it, it also means like sometimes it helps to be mute. And I, I never had a mute button. <laughs> I needed to develop a mute button. Um, but yeah, I think there's, there's a, there's an argument to be made for quiet and silence in a relationship as a couple. And, um, and not like I'm giving you the silent treatment which we used to do a lot of, um, but yeah, a sort of easy silence, uh, probably very powerful. Shutting the fuck up can and should apply to email too. What is the 50% rule? Oh, oh, write your email that you want to write. Then before you send it, look at it and then cut it in half. Right. And there's another one, the guy Kawasaki rule. Um, and no email should be longer than five sentences and such a big believer in that. Are you like, you're a real, real concise emailer. Yes. Um, I've actually received compliments from people because I do, I, uh, I, I book all the guests on this podcast and I've done guest booking for the radio shows that I've hosted in the past and produced in the past. And so I've gotten really good over time at, saying who I am and, and asking, you know, giving pertinent information and asking very specific questions versus wasting somebody's time with an email. That's three or four paragraphs long with each paragraph having three or four sentences in it. Cause nobody has time for that. Whether or not, you know, who, who the other, who the emailer is. And, but it's hard to do, right? I don't know if you found like at first, it was probably difficult for you to get that discipline to be, concise maybe now it comes naturally but did you find it it took a while to be able to do it i must be a natural because it Ah. it, but well and it's probably also self-serving also because i know and i've known for a long time that i don't want to read somebody's novella in the form of an email like i just get to the point let me know what's going on so i can i can respond if need be and then get on with my day I find this so often. I, I start writing an email. It's really long. And then I look at it and go, no. <laughs> and I have to back it up and back it up and say, okay, like what one thing does this email really need to convey, you know, and, uh, or two things. And I think anything longer, you can be like, do you have time to talk? Do you have time for a chat? You know, and then we'll talk about it. But yeah, cause I don't read those long emails, you know? And I'm involved with a project where recently a guy, two people who are, it's a group thing. Two of these people write like novella length emails <laughs> to each other. And I'm always like on the sidelines watching. And I will force myself to read the whole thing. But I often go, I don't know. it's almost a sign that you haven't thought things through well enough. Right. I agree with that. And to your point, if there is a longer conversation that's necessary or more that needs to be said, set up a a Zoom meeting or a phone call or some sort of in-person conversation. Like sometimes my (laughs) wife, 
throwing her under the bus again. But sometimes my wife will ask like very serious questions via text. And I'm like, yeah. hold on, hold on. Let's let's talk let's about talk. this when we get home. I'm driving right now. I don't want to text a speech the, the next three paragraphs that are probably going to be butchered to hell by the artificial intelligence that's trying to interpret what it is that I'm going to be responding to you with. Yeah. I don't know. I, I, yeah, maybe it's because I'm kind of an over-talker. I, this really requires uh, work and concentration for me to to do that. But um, I think I've got better. Just based on this book, I, I would say so. And by the way, like your job requires you to use a lot of words. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that that is your natural inclination. You're a best-selling author. You're a journalist. You're a screenwriter too. So you need the ability to crank out a lot of words for the projects that you're creating. But, you know, there's this old saying of like, you know, uh, if I had enough time, I'd make it shorter, whatever, you know, like it's, yeah, you want to blast it all out. And then, then the real work comes with like throwing stuff out, throwing stuff out and getting down just to the the uh, the essential or the right amount of words but yeah no i oddly enough yeah i mean god i never thought of this till you just said it but like my first drafts tend to be very sloppy and very overwritten lots of repetition you know i just kind of get it all out and then the real work for me begins um in the rewrite like the rewriting is actually the writing for me that's interesting. Well, the final product for this book is it's succinct. I mean, the book is barely over 200 pages and I, I, read, know. I read a lot of books. Like I don't feel like there were any waste of words here. Like some books that end up in the three to 400 page range are like, God, you could have cut half of what you wrote here. I didn't get yeah. that feeling with this book. I thought it was a, a great read. Thank you. I think the editor was hoping it would be longer when we first conceived of it. And I kept saying, dude, I, I don't know. And he's like, oh, yeah, you'll you get into it. And it'll be, you know, and I was like, mm. and then it came out. And it was kind of a short book. And then I thought, well, yeah, but like for the subject matter, maybe it makes sense. Like you don't want to read an 800 word book about <laughs> the virtue of talking less. Right. Although I, I do think there are people who look at books and go, well, I'm not going to pay all that. And the book's only this big. I want a big fat book, you know, maybe. Who knows? Well, there's always uh, Brothers Cars Matzoff. All right, uh, chapter nine is- <laughs> In War and Peace, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Chapter nine is Shut the Fuck Up is Power. Yeah. In this chapter, you go over ways some really powerful and successful people make things happen by saying very little. For instance, what is the Bezos question mark method? Uh, it's a great example. Uh, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, Um has developed this thing called the question mark method, which is when, let's say, a customer writes to Jeff Bezos complaining about something, some big problem. Um, and it must be important enough to get all the way to him. He will then, instead of answering the customer, will find out who's the person inside Amazon responsible for this and just forward the email to that person with a question mark. Like, you know, see below, what's this? And apparently, people in Amazon would live in fear of getting a question mark email from Jeff Bezos because it meant, you know, you're in trouble. You better fix this now. And um, and you can see how it would be almost scarier than him going on. I don't know, even if he's yelling at you, 
but the tendency of the boss would be like, hey, I know, blah, 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 but maybe you can figure this out and tell me what's going on. And maybe is it this or is it that, blah, blah, blah. Or the one that just goes, you, you know, like really mean email. Just the one question mark. Think about how scary that is, right? Just like, I'm not going to tell you what I think. Just fix this. And um, yeah, it's a savage move. I... Uh, and I think you have to be Jeff Bezos to pull it off, but maybe not. Maybe any of us could be like, you know, sometimes you send an email to someone, it's like, FYI, see below. It's like, you don't need any more comment from me. This is what, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Richard Branson, you uh, you give some good examples uh, from his uh, leadership memoir throughout this book. And I think the example you provide in chapter nine is how he takes notes like whenever he's in meetings he does very little talking and he takes a lot of notes yeah and then responds accordingly after the fact i like yeah. that because we all feel so much pressure to comment immediately on what's going on in our lives or in this world which is probably a byproduct of uh, social media society and so somebody who's obviously accomplished as much as he has choosing to write down what is being talked about, really consider how he's going to respond before eventually doing so. There's a ton of value in that. Yeah, I've started doing that. Where's my, oh, here it is. It's, it's going to make some noise, but I carry a notebook everywhere I go now. And I like every meeting all day long. It's like a journal I have. I get up, okay, today's Tuesday, February 28th, 2023. And I'll write that I had this meeting. And I just take notes in the meeting. I'll put highlighters. And then... um. I find that later it's it's easy enough for me to spin back and go, oh, what did we talk about in that meeting back in January 12th? And I can flip through and find it. Uh, the tricky bit is when you don't remember what day the meeting was on. But anyway, yeah, I- Or you lose the notebook. Or you lose a notebook, right? Sometimes I'll, I'll write things down on paper and then I'll go create a Google doc and, you know, put it there so it's, you know, I remember. But I do think it forces you, Branson's thing is it forces you to pay attention. Yeah. You know, and it shows the other person that you're paying attention because you're looking at them and you're writing it down. They know you're you're paying attention to what they say. Um, yeah, I think it's a it's a really good, a really good trick. Branson's big on listening. Mm -hmm. He really believes, um, you know, the best thing to do is sit back in a meeting, let everybody else talk. For If you're the one running the meeting, you should be the last one to talk. You know, maybe you open it up and then go around and then, then, you know, you say what you want to say or say, I, I just talked to someone who knew someone in the Obama administration who said Obama would routinely have a meeting, ask a few questions, but really say very little. And at the end be like, okay, thanks. I got all the information I needed. Now I'll, I'll go off and make the decision. But, you know, um, a lot of bosses and managers, I think, have a hard time doing that. Yeah. It makes you wonder about the Obama example because you do talk about this and shut the fuck up at work that yeah. work meetings are the worst. Ugh. They are typically filled with people who love to hear themselves talk and feel like that's the perfect forum to do so. If meetings in the Obama White House or whatever, you know, whoever the uh whoever the president is at that given at that point in time, if there are notorious overtalkers in those meetings that everybody else just rolls their eyes as soon as they open their mouth for the first time because they know that that person is going to have a hard time shutting up. Oh, 
And you, you know, you've probably been in those, you know, where you get on. I think some people feel if they don't say anything, people are going to think they're dumb. You know, well, I'm not carrying my weight. I need to have something smart to say here. I better be, you know, be able to impress everybody with my brilliant thought. And it's hard to sit back and be like secure enough to go like, no, I, you know, they know I'm, I, I know I'm like Obama didn't have to prove anything. Right. And, um, and also there are people like I know this, I generally don't think well on my feet. Like I, if I'm in a meeting and we're trying to brainstorm an idea and I very often won't have an idea in the meeting, but like two hours later or that night driving home or going out for a walk, something will hit me. So I need that delay, you know, to be able to, uh, to come up with an idea. I think the same thing happens in big organizations for what it's worth. I think, you know, there are companies that think, well, we need to communicate to the organization. So let's have an all hands and let's have 90, let's have two hour all hands. And we'll just throw slide after slide after slide. And each slide has a whole bunch of stuff. And someone will sit on the call and just read everything on the slide to everybody who's sitting there watching the slide. And and, and at the end, it's like, well, well, we got five minutes left. Any questions, any Q&A? And I feel like, you know, uh, at an organizational level, it's the same as at an uh, interpersonal level. It's like 60-40 rule, right? Yeah, you have to communicate to the organization or to your team if you have a team of 10 people, but you got to let them into that conversation, you know? So, yeah, it's, it's very rare that I've been in a work meeting that goes over 30 minutes. that has any more value than whatever that first half hour provided, or if it does go longer, typically there was somebody windbagging it for a good <sighs> 10 to 15 minutes throughout that just could have been cut out altogether, but maybe it, <laughs> speaks to what you just mentioned, which is the insecurity of not wanting to be the person in a room who contributed nothing. And as a result, you end up harming yourself in a different way by annoying yeah, the shit out of everybody. Right. So where's that balance? Yeah. Because if you just sit there, you know, there's the other people who are in a group meeting and they're muted and the picture is off and you know, <laughs> they're not even there. They're like watching TV. They may not even be in the room, right? So you can't be that person, right? You need to be attentive, but listening. But yeah, I don't think you necessarily have to um, uh, talk a lot. Do you mean to tell me that people know that me being muted and off camera, they realize what's really going on on my end? <laughs> I don't know. I can't say what people know. I I know that when I'm muted and off camera, I am not paying attention. <laughs> I, although I had one yesterday. Sometimes it's, there's a group that I'm in a group call with and nobody puts on video. It's kind of nice. You're just on audio, you know, and I mute because I'm usually not the main person in the meeting. I'm kind of, uh, if anyone has a question or wants to ask, or if I have an idea, I might, oh, hey, can I chip in? But um but I am paying attention. But yeah, I think they may, yeah, you may be getting busted if you, depends on the meeting. Yes, that's and what it sounds like. It sounds like you sit, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say, it sounds like you sit through a lot of the kind of meetings I sit through too, where you're just like, why am I on this meeting? Yeah, there's a fair number <laughs> of those. So I'm not going to feel bad about continuing to uh, mute my mic and turn my camera off. <laughs> yeah. 
chapter 10 is shut the fuck up and listen. So hopefully for those listening right now, or for those who have had the pleasure of reading this book and have made the effort to shut the fuck up. Yeah. We're also doing a better job of listening, but why is listening so hard for a lot of people, Dan? Oh yeah. It's amazing how hard it is. And one theory is that it's physiological, that actually our brains can process, I think it's 800 words a minute, and our most of us speak 125, something like that. Um, and so, you know, someone's talking to you, but your brain has all these spare cycles, because like, yeah, I can hear what you're saying. And then my brain goes, starts wanting to do other things, like look at my phone or, you know, check email, you know, and then you're not paying attention at all. So it is... Um, you have to force your brain to do something that it doesn't really want to do. That's one theory. Um, you know, other theories are just that you know, people tend to sit there and already be thinking about what they want to say. And we talked about this before. Um, as soon as you're finished, or yeah, they want to they want to make sure you think that they're smart. They want to impress you. They have a, something clever to say. It's um, it's just very very hard to to sit back and actively listen and resist the urge to jump in. You actually sought out listening advice from the professor of a course on listening at Keene yeah. University in New Jersey. And the final class assignment at the end of each semester is something that I absolutely love. She has her student uh, students sit through a conversation with somebody that they either don't like or hold drastically different opinions on and yeah. come back to class with something that they've learned. Have, did you end up doing this? And if so, what did you learn? I have, um, I have like, I, I have a, a family member who is, um, and a very, uh, different end of the political spectrum than, than I am. Right. And we have very different opinions and it would be very easy to demonize each other. And I mean, for her to think I'm a, I'm a lefty communist who, you know, blah, blah, blah. And for me to say, oh, you're a fascist Nazi, blah, blah, blah. you know what I mean? You know, the, you know, the whole thing, right? The typical members, terms thrown around on social media. It's horrible. Yeah. We probably would never call each other that, but we would sort of get angry. And, and I thought, well, you know, it's, I, I don't want to get in an argument, but I'm curious, like, you know, I, I like you, I love you, you know, you're. So I like it, but we we have very different opinions, or we voted for two different people. Like, why did you and your friends all vote that way? Like, I, I'd like to know. Like, what is it? Is it um, was there a policy? You know, because maybe you 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 think your four hundred one k will be will perform better, and that that that's a legitimate thing to me. I could see saying, well, you know, I don't want my retirement money to be, you know, thrown away. So we would, and we ended up having a good conversation that was respectful. And oddly enough, she then was less angry at me. She's like, well, I get why you think the way you do. And um and it was uh it was okay. But um yeah, but it began with me just saying, tell me. Just talk to me and let her talk. And uh yeah, that that woman at, at uh, that professor is we she and I become friends. She's fantastic. Mm. She's also a very, very good listener. I would hope so. If that's the course that she is. Well, right. Yeah. 
But I'm also glad to hear that about you and your family member. And this gets back to something that you were talking about earlier in this conversation. It's really hard to have civil discourse in modern times. Theoretically, social media was supposed to help with that. Clearly, that has not happened, nor is it going to happen because people get to operate without any sort of um, accountability if they say, if and when they say something truly ugly to somebody else. And one of the keys to us, like getting this whole thing back on track, is those who are capable to try and have those disagreeable conversations. And the point is not to try and change somebody else's mind. You're certainly welcome to try and do so. But to go into a situation like that and coming out of it, maybe having a better idea as to why somebody feels the way that they do. And mm. and generally speaking, maybe operating with more of a, a sense of empathy as we're all operating in this crazy world. Yeah, I think that's a really good idea. That's that's exactly right, you know, and it's possible to not agree, not share the same beliefs on everything, but still to respect each other and like each other, you know. Um, Matthias Mail and I talked about that, the uh, the speech professor in Arizona, mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, why can't you have a conversation with someone that you disagree with? Maybe you don't even talk about the thing you disagree on, but there's all sorts of other ways like, hey, I really like you. You know, you're a great person. It's cool. Let's go you know, do stuff together. You know, you can be, I suppose you could be on a, a softball team with someone and be like, you're great. I love playing softball with you and you're really good at softball. So we like having you on the team and you go out for beers afterwards. Like, it's all great. I know that you feel that way about that and I feel that way about it. Okay. You know, um, I actually think it would, you know, it would be a good way to start healing some of that stuff in our culture, just learning to listen, just stop, you know, just stop, listen, you don't even have to agree, you know? All right. Last question, Dan, and I do appreciate okay. the extended time here. So considering that you just wrote this excellent book on shutting the fuck up, have you mastered the art as somebody who is a self-identified overtalker of shutting the fuck up? I think so. I don't know if I've mastered the art. I've got better. Okay. And I still don't always do well. I still slip up. But I've had people tell me that I seem different. And in fact, I had two podcast interviews where the person said, you know, we went and watched some of your videos before we got you on here and like, dude, you're nothing like that guy. I think they were disappointed too. I think they wanted like, Oh, the funny guy is crazy. And uh, so I thought, well, maybe that's true. My wife says, my wife says I've changed. Hmm. So I'm, I'm better. I don't know if I've mastered the art. Fair answer. He is Dan Lyons. The new book is STFU, The Power of Keeping Your Mouth Shut. Dan, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Well, thank you for having me and taking an interest. I really appreciate it. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work, GentlemanJesus.com. And thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.